Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we are here with Carlos Hernandez Tejas, and we are very excited to be talking about growth research, which is one of my very favorite topics to talk about. So thanks for joining us, Carlos. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk about growth and all things research with you today. Fantastic. We've got JH here, too. Yeah, Aaron, I feel like you're our resident growth person, so we'll see if I can get a few uh, few words oh, in. Oh, sure. <laughs> Let you uh, take, it away, take it away, yeah. Yeah, two of my favorite things, growth and research, so this should be a lot of fun. Really enjoyed your presentation at Learners as well, so it's uh, like our own personal Q&A follow-up in a way, so <laughs> very exciting. Thanks again for joining, so we'll just go ahead and jump right in. I think a good first question often is, what is this thing that we're talking about? So... What is growth research and, you know, how did you come to be focusing on this? Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a funny story associated to that because um, I had never really personally had any direct experience with growth research prior to really joining Nubank three years ago. So I think the definition of, of growth research for me is very tied to this specific place where I've been able to really kind of get creative with all things research applied to growth work. Uh, but the way I would define it is exactly that. It's, I think, using and applying all our different techniques, tools, and even mindsets of UX research and, and, and the things we know how to do really well as UX researchers, and then applying them to helping companies, helping startups in their growth journey, in, in, in helping them attract, onboard, and properly sort of set up each and every one of their clients for, for a successful product experience. So I would say mm -hmm. that you know, it, it is defining growth research. It's, it's not necessarily about talking about product oriented research, but more of a platform that really helps, you know, obviously, and enables everything that happens uh, in the customer journey after that, after that client, after that person, that user has, has joined the product or, or signed up for it. So it's applying all that we know how to do for products, but thinking about it in a platform way that I think can be, you know, even more elastic, even more exciting in many ways. Great. Yeah. I imagine a lot of people listening are more familiar with the research part than the growth part. So you were talking about growth in terms of onboarding and customer journeys and really setting them up for having a good product experience. And you also mentioned the word platform a couple of times. So I wondered if we could dig into that a little bit. What do you mean when you talk about sort of platform research and platform work? Sure, sure. So actually, and maybe even to double click a little bit on your question about, about growth, I think it's something that yeah. I've personally seen a lot of excitement around in the last couple of years. And obviously, you know, again, growth means obviously supporting the, the company's expansion and, and growing the customer base and making sure that obviously that ties to a lot of the marketing efforts uh, at the very, very beginning of, of the journey, but then also focuses a lot on on conversion, activation efforts, and then as well as onboarding and proper sort of handover even to all the all the product teams that are within within the product itself. So, so I think growth is sort of this this sexy term that's been throwing around uh, that's been thrown around a lot. Uh, in fact, I think us at Nubank Hat changed it a little bit. Even we used to be called focused on acquisition, but then we understood that actually our work has to do with more than that. So everything from awareness to to onboarding, and I think I think growth is a is a good is a good word to tackle that. And then going back to your question about platforms, even that I think took us a little while to get to get used to. 
uh, sort of what it really is platform thinking. Like when when you as a researcher are not allocated within a specific product that obviously obviously you know has certain set definitions, typically you know a very well defined or at least <laughs> as well defined as it can get roadmap and so on and so forth. And so when you are a platform team, I think you not only get to be more creative and have more of a, of a wide-reaching impact in what you do, but also that comes with a lot of ambiguity. And so I think working as a platform team means dealing with so many different variables, so many different interdependencies with other, with other teams, but understanding that you are a cross-functional and even you're a very sort of uh, foundational team for all the product action that in so many ways happens above you or sort of siloed is not necessarily the right word, but platform is a lot more about all that horizontal foundational work, whereas product efforts, I think, are a lot more vertical and clinical in that regard and focus. So the horizontal, like literally covering more surface area. And so when you think about growth multipliers, the work you're doing has far reach, right? Because it can potentially impact the entire sort of product experience, customer experience. Yeah, I think as, as platform teams, you know, our command and our really our premise is you can go work on anything as long as it, it mm-hmm. drives work for, uh, growth right. for the it's company. It's good to make friends. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we talk about this a lot because, you know, I'm on the product. Yeah, yeah. As I say, Aaron, we've talked about this a lot because, you know, me on the product side, you, you know, thinking about growth, there's obviously a lot of overlap. And as we try to have come up with a working definition for ourselves, I think something we've kind of landed on a little bit is, you know, growth is a little bit more about connecting users to the value that we already have, like so whether that's improving adoption rates or success through funnels or, you know, setting up different loops where the product team, the core team is a little bit more responsible for like creating new solutions that can add some value. So we don't have a way of solving this problem for people today. And and now we do. That's not a perfect definition, but like in broad strokes, I'm curious, given the overlap, but also the uniqueness, like where does growth research differ from product research? So I'd imagine there's a handful of things in common, but it's a unique thing. You know, you're speaking to it in a unique way. Like, how is it different? Yeah, I think I think one of the key differences, and and again, it, it sort of really speaks to our placement, I think, within the customer journey is that when you do growth research virtually your you know your sample really by definition is everyone who's not yet using your product or everyone who's not yet you know onboarded or, or part of your business so i think that that is very exciting i think it's, it gives me uh, great pleasure to to be working in such an environment but i think it also comes with a lot of different challenges particularly around data collection around reaching that customer around understanding that future customer even so while a lot of our product allocated teams can you know dive in and get to know that customer get analyze a lot of the analytics and sort of know really well their segment and what and their behaviors once they're using our product i don't think that's necessarily the case for growth so constantly we're working with brand managers and product managers who are interested in entering new markets or opening up new segments uh, for the company. And that exactly means that we're just operating in this sort of open sea environment. And so I think that requires a lot of elasticity, a lot of sort of comfort with ambiguity, uh, a lot of detective work to then understand and piece together, All right, there's this open sea, but we're going to cast our net here first. And then that's going to take us a little bit forward and we're going to gain a little bit more clarity. And so it's like a it's a little bit of like sort of an adventure or like a quest kind of way of working, which I really enjoy. Uh, I would say that's the main difference. And again, in that in that we're opening, we're operating from the door out. And so as a result, we, I think, have to be 
a lot more creative in the ways we go about gathering that data and learning about our users. I would also say that the second bit is that obviously work growth teams, for those of you who know, are very focused uh, around a lot of a ton of metrics. So this means that we are we need to be able to be creative in the way we apply our methods and in the way we connect with, you know, this research and design mindset. But we also need to be very sharp in our interactions with these business teams that are very metric oriented, that are very mm. obviously in one way or another uh, pressing for that business impact and, and monitoring our success quite closely. And so I would say that it requires a certain elasticity and creativity to operate in mm -hmm. this open environment, as well as a certain sort of business sharpness in order to create good relationships with, with the mm. product teams. Have you had to do a lot of selling of the value of qualitative user research to the quants you work with? Or is it sort of, are you coming into a scenario where it's like, we need user research, we know that already, we believe in it, or maybe somewhere in between? No, this is a great question. You know, uh, about three and a half years ago, when I first joined Nubank, I was the only and first researcher allocated in the growth business unit. So back then, I was lucky to have support and already, you know, a good amount of buy-in uh, from the general managers and, and other sort of leadership in the business unit. But I do think there was more than a selling, there was a need for demonstrating how we were going to do this and how research was going to operate within the with, within the growth context. So again, the teams were already good and good to go with tons of dashboards, tons of data, tons of analytics, but they were constantly wondering about the why. Why is it that that's happening? Or why are people dropping there? And why are people not following through? And so there was already kind of, they understood the need and they had some questions uh, formed pretty well when I joined. But yeah, I think there was a need more of like, okay, well, come along on this journey. Like, we'll <laughs> do this together. And then you'll really sort of see the impact. And I think ever since, you know, the team has grown. So it's tripled at this point. We are, have a, you know, very, very busy research pipeline right now. And so I think we've, we've really tried to work uh, together to show that really good impact and juicy goodness that I think uh, qualitative research can bring into a very quantitative, again, metric oriented environment. I really enjoyed the uh, the open sea casting net adventure uh, frame. I was going to go, yeah, don't boil the ocean though. Yeah, yeah. Let's see how far <laughs> we can take metaphor. it. Yeah. The thing I, I was wondering, if maybe you have an example here, is I think sometimes when you have people who are so fluent in the data and metrics, you inevitably find something that just makes you like scratch your head. You're like, this trend or this data point makes no sense. And then you probably can plug in and help figure out the why or answer for them. Like, do you have any had any of those moments? Because I, I think that's one of the things I always think about when people are really good on the data side you inevitably find something that just like, you know what I mean? You can't explain. And then the research, I'd imagine that dynamic is really powerful. Yeah, actually, yes. We do have several instances of that happening. I mean, for example, one of the, I mean, I don't know. No, I think I can, I can, I can go into a fair amount of detail about this, actually. You decide. Already... <laughs> yeah, yeah. You generalize it. We'll take there. whatever you got. <laughs> okay, okay. So, but there was an instance within our flow. Uh, right before the customer was going to get released and we're going to get their new bank account open and ready to go. And we used to show a nudge, right? Encouraging them to invite family or friends to join new bank as well. And that screen did really, really well, right? Typically when you only just looked at the dashboard. So tons of invites came from that, tons of releases, and that was all good to go. Except when during one of our, of our sort of funnel deep dives last year, we really realized that, well, the copy was still a little bit weird. We also were not giving the user the amount of 
choice that they would like in that scenario. So obviously, while they were waiting to be released, they were encouraged to shoot an invite out to someone they knew, and that was good. But many users related or told us that that was not necessarily the best moment for that, since they had very little context about the other the product yet. They hadn't even entered the account, their account. And we also didn't necessarily offer, again, a good amount of pathways for them to choose what they wanted to do forward. So the business analyst, as, as well as the designers, got together in order to create a much better nudge to place it in a more appropriate part of the journey, and that did even better. And so what on the dashboard and when, what on the numbers way was seemed to be doing okay, we understood that in the UX and in the qualitative experience, it was sort of missing the mark in so many ways. So with a quick nudge and a quick amount of adjustments, we were able to create even an even better solution that is still up and running today and doing much better than the original one. Uh, so I think that was one of the instances in which we were like, okay, how can we how can we bring value and how can we also inspire new new ways of thinking and problem solving mm-hmm. uh, with the team? So it sounds like you had a funnel or a, a loop, you had a flow that was working mm-hmm. well, And only upon sort of digging deeper did you realize maybe it could be working a whole lot better than it already was. Because I think what happens a lot is you see a problem, a drop off or something, and you want to go in and optimize and fix it. (laughs) But sometimes you can get your most leverage from improving something that is already maybe in your mind and and folks' minds like, this is working great, like, you know. Yeah, and and I think we find ourselves a lot in that spot. You know, I I Mm -hmm. do think that as a whole at Nubank, we pride ourselves on on our user experience. We've given it great care and great attention. And so for, you know, all things considered, our flow at this point, I think, you know, we've gone uh, through several rounds of iteration and optimization. And so it's like it gets even harder every time, you know, to like kind Mm -hmm. of get that next percentage point and get that next improvement. And so I think we're... Yeah, we're constantly sort of working in that way, obviously optimizing whatever needs to be optimized, but uh, but also understanding what what things can be even better and we don't even yet know about. Yeah, you were talking a little bit about, you know, some of the differences in mentality and mindset and, you know, proficiency with the metrics and the business impact. Does that translate to different, you know, research methodologies or approaches that you're using that maybe people in, in different research roles, you know, lean on less or approach in a different way? I think triangulation is something that I love a lot and that we care a lot here at Growth. I think the reason why it's important is because, again, we're constantly needing to sort of collect our own data in so many ways and also understand the ways in which we also need to crisscross it in order to paint the fuller picture of the funnel. Again, you have a quantitative view. You can also get an entirely qualitative view. How do those two things talk to each other? So I think we use... A fairly familiar, I would say, toolkit, you know, everything from interviews and quantitative surveys, uh, usability tests, diary studies, uh, analytics dashboards. So we use all the we use the whole spectrum, I think, uh, in order to inform the strangulation. It just depends on on where in the funnel you apply that method, because obviously we've also, (laughs) I think, learned a lot about like, okay, you know what, applying that survey or applying doing an interview at this stage doesn't make sense. It doesn't really give it give us any any. Uh, any new insights or not as many as we expected. So it's understanding where to place these methods at what stage of the funnel, I think that gives you that true richness and that in so many ways then articulates that triangulation properly. 
because uh, you know people will tell you something in the initial interview people will show something else entirely differently when you're running a usability study then say something differently in the diary and then when you go to the dashboards and so i feel like it's it's more of articulating the narrative that each of those methods provides but i wouldn't say that there are any well you know we use, we've used a lot of interesting applications of, of cano model of concept testing also you know applied to a growth context of of a sign up it's sort of an interesting way but i wouldn't say that there's any particular method that's that's new or unknown i would say it's more mm -hmm. about understanding that it's like a curator ship attempt to you know where to when to place them and and how to use them so that they give you uh, a, a fuller picture of the funnel yeah and, and that's what you see i think a lot of in modern research too right is applying old methods that have existed you know in academic research for a long time new ways and a new combinations to new kinds of problems whether it's we, we talked with someone from Spotify on, you know, sort of digital ethnography and, you know, mm -hmm. applying, again, existing methods to, to new contexts and, and new ways yeah. of doing it. Yeah, we're huge fans of digital ethnography here, especially, you know, <laughs> a couple of years ago, we did a big, right when COVID was in full force, obviously, and again, taking advantage of a, a lot of that remote research shift that mm -hmm. took place, because obviously, in order to navigate this open sea, environment that I was talking about earlier, I think, I think that can, that can, that's just brought us so much value and like being able to reach so many more customers and potential customers all throughout Brazil and Latin America, which is a huge territory. And I think, you know, applying them, I think digitally and finding new creative ways to take it further and take them further as methods and as, as, as tools, I think has been, um, has been really exciting. When you were saying triangulation, like what does that actually mean in practice? Like I, you know, I think three. So you're trying to, you know, get different signals and and use that to kind of figure out where to focus. Um, how does that come to life? Yeah. So uh, here at Growth, we actually team up a lot, really closely with our business analysts, and there's this we call them CIA, which is really hilarious, but it's the Central Insights <laughs> and Analytics sort of uh, squad here within the Growth Business Unit. And we rely on them a lot to help us in this uh, in this effort. So, okay, we uh, we have aligned with a certain PM or a certain designer that we're gonna run a survey or a, a usability study or an, an in-depth interview. And then, as that as part of that result, we try to, as much as possible, pair these sort of these again tactical or I would say as we deploy the method, we also try to understand how our other alternative avenues or parallel ways to collect data as that certain experiment is running or as that field work interviews are running so that we can then more kind of clinically and accurately, I think, assess uh, with CIA what's happening in real time. And so I would say it's, again, letting the user, uh, the user researcher and the designer do their thing, run their show, uh, but also not forgetting that there is a really, really big, important ally here on, on the insights and analytics side that can that can help us and can help you know again triangulate the data that's coming in qualitatively or through that survey uh, through that usability study and then pair it up with the efforts that we get from CIA but I would say that there is a there is this kind of approach in which I think that is exemplified even more successfully which is a yearly kind of state of the funnel a research project and we're just about ready getting ready to run it at, in Q1 next year. And so basically that is like a whole month long research 
effort that also is really helpful and really useful for all the teams as they're working on their on their roadmaps for the new year. And basically what happens is that we run, you know, the full gamut. We run interviews, diary studies, as well as sort of specifically created dashboards for the participants. And so in that way, we're better able to monitor sort of reported qualitative data in a live interview, reported qualitative data via a diary, and as well as uh, sort of tracking of actual behavior that's taking place in the app once they you know, navigate through our funnel and then, uh, and then become our clients. And so I would say that there are ways to do it within the same research project. And we try to do this in this sort of very intensive way. But then there are also other ways in which even just culti- cultivating strong relationships with more quantitative teams can help you triangulate your data and better inform again and mm-hmm. build your mm-hmm. more robust insights. So if you're doing this every year, are you benchmarking? Are you, you know, you have your, so you talked about where does your funnel start and end? Like, what are the keys? Is it end when you become a customer or when you have done certain activation actions or? Yeah, yeah. So our, our funnel actually extends a little bit, you know, earlier and later than you would originally think. So we, we tackle everything going from uh, awareness and consideration. So even before the user starts to fill their application to the project, to the product, and it also ends after they've become an active client. So we do consider onboarding, activation, and recommendations. So the MGM member get mm-hmm. member mm-hmm. part of it as well. Uh, we're even trying, you know, right now and very strategically using research to try to talk to some of those other teams that we hand over to to see if they can let us play with them a little longer. So, <laughs> so the funnel covers all of that. It's obviously it becomes an articulation and an even kind of descriptive exercise and how you define your funnel what happens mm-hmm. really within each of those stages and then how to act and how to really um, and, and so you have a structured way to do that it sounds like and you're able to compare it over time like is that part yes. of the idea we can say last year this part of the yeah. funnel was you know looking I imagine you're doing this continuously as well but yeah. this is more of again the comparison deeper dive and you're looking at yeah. the quant and then pulling in the qual. And I've seen some of your Miro boards. They're Miro boards, right? The, <laughs> yes. Is that what, how you yes, kind of bring all this data together? <laughs> yeah, I imagine figuring out how to do that the first time was quite an endeavor. And maybe is it a little easier as inconsequential mm. goes around at it? Or Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, even just reflecting on that first time brings all all the memories back because I was, you know, again, that was right at the very beginning. I was I was there alone. I worked with a lot of designers and PMs in in putting that together. But it was basically, you know, Carlos against the world at that point. (laughs) So it was I was it started from this crazy idea. It started from, you know, the the desire to start paying a lot of this research debt. So there was obviously lots going on. And I knew that, you know, uh, through a big research effort like this was going to, that was going to be helpful. But yes, ever since that first edition, we have not only kept track of our own internal evaluation tools and there's product product excellence frameworks and other sort of, you know, customer centric metrics that we use to benchmark every year we run this as a way to like, okay, yeah, keep a benchmark. Like, are we improving? Is the funnel getting better? Uh, Is our own sort of, self-evaluation of the funnel improving but then also we try to become more ambitious every year so we knew that while there were some things that were happening in a very rudimentary way in the beginning or at least in that first edition then we went in and improved them for the second and now we're getting ready for the third edition Uh, we know a, a much more mature team a much better understanding of what our 
the nooks and crannies that we can get into and even double click. So I think we're getting more specific in our inquiry every year. And as well, yeah, we're, we're sort of always benchmarking and comparing to where we were a year ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to uh, speak in some broad generalizations, so we'll see how this goes. I think one thing I think when I think about, you know, a growth team versus maybe a core product team is sort of maybe their pace, like, you know, uh, a little bit faster experimentation or quick ideation and stuff, not strictly speaking, but I think if you looked at the whole portfolio, probably a little bit of a trend that way. And the thing we talk a lot about with researchers is, you know, you need your insights available at the time when they can actually influence a decision. So I'm curious, does that translate to like the research pace or the formality? Like, is there anything you have to do as a growth researcher to make sure that, you know, you're getting stuff that can inform decisions at the right time and, and all that? Yeah, no, definitely. I would say that when we compare our pace to some of the, to that of, of some of our colleagues that uh, uh, allocated in the products, we do, we do tend to face a little bit more of that, of that pressure, of that need to, you know, collect data fast as possible to inform a certain decision or to inform a certain, you know, again, rollout of a feature or not. And so I do think that that is a little bit, you know, intense for sure when compared to product teams or depending, you know, on, on what the scope is that maybe can take a, a little bit more of a, I wouldn't say necessarily relaxed because it's never, it never is, but I would say a little bit more of a, okay, parsed out, um, maybe even more extended timelines for, for the research, particularly, you know, when it's like new product ideation and so on and so forth. And so I think that we are a little bit operating in the funnel and, and, and to throw another metaphor, because it's not only an open sea, but it's a bit of a vortex. And so you always mm. feel like you're just like spinning and spinning and spinning. And it's like, okay, there we go. There we go. There we go. So I would say that there are, there is that pressure from the business and particularly, you know, in a startup with, with hyper growth numbers, such as new banks to sort of kind of keep that pace. But I would say that can be really good too. too. And I think us as researchers, as part of the growth research team, we've learned, we've learned a lot around that, you know, because the need to bring product teams in to the insights, even though they're not fully cooked, or even though there's yet some data to roll in and to be analyzed. Like I think our, our product peers have also really helped us see that there's already value in that. And pie doesn't need to come out of the oven, like when it's perfectly cooked, that we can actually all be in there in the kitchen together and ship and give insight and be allies in that decision making you know in a way that i think can be that's been beneficial for us and also to the business to sort of try to be i think a little bit less attached with the perfection or with the rigor in which we have to complete a full synthesis process or a full analysis and so i think that we've worked a little bit more in a scrappy mode in a workshoppy mode uh, in a co-creative way uh, with them. And I think we've learned a lot in the process. So yeah, there's the pressure of speed, but I think that's also helped us see our value, I think, more quickly mm -hmm. and also ship insights, I think, also faster. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the big themes uh, we hear from researchers uh, these days is around how to identify the impact of the work they're doing. There's a lot of different ways to do that, but do you find that that's easier in a growth context or uh, different? And Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the impact you've been able to have in your work doing growth research. Yeah, I think that, yes, I would say initially, you know, it was it was equally hard to try to begin articulating this this impact. I myself have, have learned quite a bit from colleagues and, and from conferences on this topic of articulating the impact and showing the impact. I think that in the beginning, again, it was really easy to find that really juicy, amazing insight that you could just tell 
as soon as it was implemented, boom, there was the impact, like double digit uh, percentage growth. And, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. that that also showed us, okay, cool. That way we can correlate literally our work with what happened in the funnel and what happened with the business. Obviously, as some of those big areas where uh, we're receiving more attention, we're receiving more focus, then it just becomes like harder to get to that jewel, mm-hmm. to get to that mm-hmm. little pearl of an insight. But I think that doesn't mean that that necessarily the impact will will diminish. Quite the contrary. I think again, we have learned ourselves within our within the growth context to articulate uh, our research impact in that way. And you know, paired with the experimentation that the designers are running constantly, it's been a good way, perhaps even easier. I think also in showing and in articulating that impact, literally related to the insight, the experiment, the design experimentations that happened, and then the business result that came. So I think that mm-hmm. there's. I don't know if it's because our context is so multidisciplinary already that researchers, designers, and product and business analysts are all working together already and like so sort of in the right place. But I would say it hasn't been hard to show and really literally see it in real time, the, the impact of our work. I, in the talk, and my colleague Kakao talked a little bit about the uh, unexpected impacts that we've also found in, in in doing research in a growth context, such as, you know, again, helping with onboarding new arrivals in the company. So, you know, obviously we, we invite them to a research session so they understand mm-hmm. how users mm-hmm. open an account and how, and how the funnel works. So a lot it's inspired a lot of co-creation and letting teams solve other teams' problems also. And so there's been a lot of that hard impact that's easy to articulate on that, you know, you always get a percentage and a conversion rate and a sort of total active user base increase. But I think that those softer impacts, I think, have also become really integral in our mm-hmm. research culture at growth. A tactical question on that, you know, so you know you're having impact, you can see it in these ways. Is that you kind of like summarizing out to the organization? Like, here are some big things that research helped drive. Or is it just like when the other growth stakeholders are talking about the wins and the impact they're driving as they do that storytelling, it's just really obvious that research was a part of it in the sense of, you know, we moved this nudge because we found out people didn't like it here and it's led to this, you know, huge increase in usage. How does it actually like get trans like, you know, communicated to the organization that the research is really helping here? Yeah. So I think that there are examples I have for both ways. So we do try to get, you know, shoot our, our research updates on Slack obviously communicate at a BU forum, hey, research uh, helped drive this, and, and obviously, you know, uh, design and any other team involved. And so I think we that role of research leadership to articulate and remind, I think, and show the, the business of, of the impact of any given research activity, I think that's for sure there's that active kind of showing the impact way of doing things. And we've done that a lot, and I understand that there's that's valuable, that that's needed also in so many ways to, you know, unlock headcount or open up access to more strategic forums. But surprisingly, and to be honest, that's like, in a sense, the the bit I enjoy the most of all of this. There's been a lot of passive impact articulation, if I can say, if I can say that way. So whenever there's our, our semesterly hackathon at growth, you know, research just, just, get, just gets like spontaneously quoted, even within teams that we didn't even know were that close to the to the results or to the to the content even so even extending as far as you know the sort of farthest reaching up up steam that's there answering customer questions or 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 solving any sort of uh, funnel pain point and then research is there and then research just gets quoted and so i think there's a lot of there's a lot of that passive articulation that's not even done by researchers in so many of the 
in so many of the instances that I think gets us really giddy and that gets us really happy about the way in which, again, there's just like a whole impact and a whole way of, of talking about research that, that we necessarily didn't articulate or we weren't so careful about, but we love it when it gets out there and people, you know, again, name products or name initiatives based on insights and say that it was that like that because of a user said something or because uh, this happened in the session. And so I think that there's, there's both, again, that, that active way that you can go to show the impact and, again, pair with the mm-hmm. numbers and, and, and cite the initiatives. But then there's also that really beautiful way in which it all happens kind of on its own and spreads around the teams organically. So I think we've seen sort instances of, of, of both of those. Yeah. Kind of triangulation in a way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. Impact triangulation. Yeah. 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 Particularly, and let me just say something, maybe my last point a little bit on impact, which is that, you know, growth teams, I think, get really good up at optimization, get really good at, you know, again, following and diagnose, di- diagnosing uh, what's going on. But that research, I think, can bring a really big impact, particularly when teams are looking for new ways of doing things. Right. It's like, listen, we've tried every which way. We've rolled out like six experiments on this and we still can't get can't get the metric to go up or down or whatever way we wanna we want it we want it to go. And I think research gets called in those instances, which is which is like a more kind of inspirational figure. It's like, okay, what ideation can we get out of a round of research? What new angle, what new sort of strategy we can derive mm-hmm. from from, yeah. from the research and so i think that, I, that's really powerful yeah i do imagine a lot of growth research can skew evaluative here's the pro yeah. you know but yeah to your point when you hit a ceiling yeah. in optimization yeah you need a new loop you need a new funnel you need a new segment you need a new pro- you know you need something new um yeah. and there's always something new it's just figuring yeah. out what the right new thing is yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so obviously yeah. research can be really helpful there there's, you know, I think research and learning are maybe not synonyms, but they're they're damn close. Mm-hmm. So what have been some of your biggest learnings and mistakes or however you've mm-hmm. gone about learning your lessons doing growth research? Mm-hmm. What are some of the biggest ones that maybe would be useful to some folks learning so they can learn the easy way? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so many, so many. And again, I especially, you know, after three years at a place like Nubank, it really feels like three decades, like worth of learning. I don't know. But there have been several. I would say the biggest one has been, again, about collaboration with other functions. So we arrived and when we were sort of setting up the research operations in a growth context, we arrived sort of obviously in this mindset of like, okay, let's roll it out. Let's like be specialist and let's be you know very very clinical and very rigorous in what we do so that we show our value and i think that was great in sort of helping establish that foundation uh, but it became very obvious very quickly that you know research in a growth context is is very complex and it requires i think by definition that it become more democratic or more accessible also to product folks the business and business analysis folks who might not be so used to to the way we work or the way we like to do things and so i think that bringing others along has been extremely important something that i wish we had learned or implemented right from the get-go because it really made a big difference not only in again sourcing data for triangulation when we need it but also helping think of the helping uh, in the analysis and, and the ideation a bit in a way that you know obviously they'll always bring more technical they'll always bring more uh, implementation knowledge than we can provide on our own 
And so I think that was that was a big, big learning to us in the beginning. A mistake that I would say also that happened, I think, in the beginning is that it's really easy to face growth research or to try to draw your quanti quantitative tools first, you know, because that's the way that it that the, everyone else in the BU is working. That's like sort of the big driver. And I think that it was really uh, powerful when we realized like, listen, actually, you know, let's take a dose of real good quality here. Let's see where that takes us. And then see that honestly, applying a dose of pure quality in a, or dropping a, a, a little drop of pure quality in a bucket of quantity was like just a chemistry like it was just chemistry in so many ways and so i think that understanding the pure value that a little bit of qualitative insight and and finding can do to a place that it's already so quantitatively driven i think that was a big lesson also and i think we keep doing that more and more i know that might be intimidating that also has to do you know i think lots of researchers struggle with this it's like okay but my audience is so quantitative or the environment that i'm operating in is so like this uh, how can I just show up with just that? And then I would say that that was a big learning to own that and to understand that the way in which you uh, go out and do that detective work and then the way in which you articulate that point of view and argue that point of view and and show how it is relevant for the decision that's being taken can just be so mind-blowing. And this happened even, and it it, it was just a, an, a, an approach that we were trying to do about fast sign-up or the idea that we could optimize it and make it as easy as possible for people to open a bank account. And there was a way, obviously, that that, that project became very, very qualitative in, in nature with tons of usability uh, tests and tons of cost concept testing. And it made it all the way to like the very top mm -hmm. leadership forums. Because anyway, you know, again, we had collected tons of footage and tons of great takes from the users on that. And it was entirely qualitative, you know, with a relatively small sample size. But so much goodness came from it that I think really unlocked the value uh, that qualitative data can bring, even in a very, very, very quantitatively driven environment. So I would say those, those, I also have learnings around recruitment. You know, that has been something that we have really had to uh, constantly focus on. Again, going back to the open sea metaphor, but there's, you know, tons of things that you can do to guarantee diverse user bases that will reflect the way that people will, will go through your funnel that will, you know, really show you how it will behave out there. And so I think learnings around qualitative versus quantity, learnings about diversity in your recruitment to really reflect how the funnel will behave once it's out there in the mm -hmm. real world. And yeah, and then about owning and, and being confident, I think, in what you bring as a, as a researcher for growth and as a strategic yeah. partner in, in driving higher growth, I would say. How do you get somebody comfortable doing that? So, you know, in the quant quality uh, example there, quanti quality, using your lingo, you have this group of people that are very quantitative. They're looking at all these charts. They're talking about statistical significance, confidence intervals, all these things. And you want to walk in there and be like, here are some clips, right? I have some insights. I'd imagine that is intimidating for folks. Is it just go in there and do it and see what happens? Or is there a way of approaching it and sharing those insights in a way that is going to be like most receptive to that audience? Or, you know, how does somebody break that barrier? Yeah. I think through stories, I think through stories, I mean, storytelling, I think is such, it's been such a huge unlocker for us in delivering that data and also allowing us to be more confident in that approach and entering those rooms and delivering that. So I think that it has to do with multidisciplinary thinking, you know, and, and the, and the make 
and the composition of your team. Obviously, you need sort of left thinkers and right thinkers, ideally, you know, hybrids whenever possible. Uh, but I think confidence in understanding both sides of that equation and then actually also developing and crafting the narrative, which is, I think, again, we can do all we want, collecting the data, setting up the slides, setting up the mirror boards, all of that stuff. But without the crafting of the narrative that will title together, that will, again, take the audience with you along the way, and then very, very clearly stating the point of view in the end. And again, I love the take that, you know, UX researchers should act more like counsel in our, to our businesses. And so I think that articulating that POV, whatever it is based on, whether like, you know, extensive quantitative study or just a little usability study with a smaller qualitative sample, I think that's all great. None of, not one of them is more valuable than the other. If I think you, at the end of the day, can stitch together that POV in a convincing way, in a way that is, you know, logical but also responsible sensibilities of the data. So I don't know how you become more confident. I think it's just doing it like over and over and over again, <laughs> trusting in the partners, trusting that everyone's here to do their best work and try to paint the, the picture uh, as best as we can. And so I think that really going back to the, the development of those relationships, the cultivation of those stakeholders, I think is what also makes, makes it easier and makes you more confident in the process. I think that's a great place to call it. Thank you so much, Carlos, for joining us today. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So appreciate all the uh, the metaphors and imagery that made it uh, easy to follow. <laughs> I've been in the ocean this whole time. Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> we love a metaphor. We love a metaphor. We do. Yes, no, it's storytelling. It helps. It makes it memorable. <laughs>